0: This episode is brought to you by Gnosis. Gnosis builds decentralized infrastructure for the Ethereum ecosystem. With a rich history dating back to 2015 and products like Safe, CowSwap, or Gnosis Chain, Gnosis combines needs-driven development with deep technical expertise. This year marks the launch of Gnosis Pay, the world's first decentralized payment network. With Ignosis card, you can spend self custody crypto at any visa accepting merchant around the world. If you're an individual looking to live more on chain or a business looking to white label the stack, visit gnosispay.com. There are lots of ways you can join the Gnosis journey. Drop in the Gnosis DAO governance form, become a Gnosis validator with a single GNO token and low cost hardware, or deploy your product on the EVM compatible and highly decentralized Gnosis chain. Get started today at gnosis.io.
1: Chorus 1 is one of the biggest node operators globally and help you stake your tokens on 45 plus networks like Ethereum, Cosmos, Celestia, and DYDX. More than 100,000 delegators stake with Chorus 1, including institutions like BitGo and Ledger. Staking with Chorus 1 not only gets you the highest years, but also... most robust security practices and infrastructure that are usually exclusive for institutions. You can stake directly to Quorus 1's public node from your wallet, set up a white label node, or use the recently launched product, Opus, to stake up to 8000 ETH in a single transaction. You can even offer high-yield staking to your own customers using their API. Your assets always remain in your custody, so you can have complete peace of mind. Start staking today at chorus.one
2: welcome to epicenter the show which talks about the technologies projects and people driving decentralization and the blockchain revolution i'm felix and i'm here with meher today we're speaking with iliad who is the co-founder of near and ceo of the near foundation near is a sharded layer one blockchain so welcome welcome Ilya, welcome back on epicenter it's great to have you for a second time
3: yeah thanks for having me and
2: congrats on uh, yeah, 10
3: years epic, epic uh, achievement in this space.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, like you said, it's it's basically 70 years in crypto. So we've we've all aged a bit. Yesterday in the episode we recorded <laughs> yesterday the 10 years episode. They had like the slideshow and you could see the progression of Meher and <laughs> Brian and Sebastian uh like from their youth to <laughs> their forties <40s> or <laughs> late thirties. So yeah that's great. Um cool. Yeah we actually wanted to start unconventionally um, with your background, Um, but in in your case, it's a very interesting background in AI and machine learning. So um, we wanted to first sort of talk about your work there. Uh, You're one of the authors of the original Transformers paper. Um, Can you, yeah, maybe start by like telling us about your start in the AI and ML space? For sure, yeah.
3: I mean, so I started... Tinkering with AI, I think even in high school, Uh, I was actually excited about neural networks as a concept. And uh, I worked for a machine learning company that was a pretty old school machine learning company, uh, starting from first year of college. But when I saw kind of deep learning resurfacing in 2012, 13, there was this kind of seminal work at a time, which uh now now feels like da but back then was very exciting which was uh they trained in neural network to encode and like encode the image and then decode it back into the same image so pre-training what we know now as uh and that model without any supervision learned to detect cats and so there was a neuron in the network which if you activate it it would it would generate a cat and like different types of cats, and so it learned something like semantic without any training, like in, any like input data from humans, right? Just by looking at images. And so when I saw that, and that was done by Google by Jeff Dean and Andrew Yang, and they did it on a bunch of GPUs, and uh, like they they managed to scale it up. And I'm like, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's the thing that's that's gonna you know actually change things. And so I joined Google Research. Uh, my belief always was that natural language, not images going to be the driver for reasoning and for, uh, kind of like intelligence because, you know, there's many, many species in the world, like hundreds of thousands of species that see and only one species that talks and has language, right? So there's way more semantic information in language. And so my team worked across a variety of things. Uh, specifically, uh, question answering. So when you like type uh, questions on Google.com, we were actually running neural networks to try to read our, like uh, pages that you see and respond to you with like a short answer. So like you would see sometimes short answers. Now the challenge was the neural networks at the time, specifically recurrent neural networks, were too slow to be put in production, and so we were just using bag of words models, which means. You literally throw all the words without any order into the model and it kind of tries to figure out what's going on. And it it worked reasonably well. But, uh, and this is where kind of uh, the Transformers gave birth, was like we could not use RNN in any practical use case. And so uh, we were looking kind of for something. And so Jakob, who was the manager and had like another team, Uh, came up with this idea like they were using attention on top of words without any recurrence for for another task and so kind of merging that idea with recurrence like can we use attention to somehow uh figure out which words are relevant in the order when you do answer questions or translate something and that kind of gave birth to the transformers really was like we need something that's really performant that can be highly parallelized and Attention is a really good mechanism, you know, logically to do this. But if you package it all, kind of the way these models really work is that everything happens in parallel. Like the way I like to describe it, there's this movie Arrival where aliens talk in the whole sentence at the same time. Like there's like a circle of script beliefs, but they produce it at the same time. And that's kind of how transformers actually read articles. It's not like one word at a time. It's literally reads the whole article all the words in parallel and then like has multiple steps to kind of process it and reconcile this, like the understanding of it. And then it answers the question. And so, so that lays out really well for the modern hardware GPUs that we use. And so it allows to have like this massive kind of performance improvement, which means also you can scale up the models. And so I've uh, was a, you know worked on that with a team of amazing researchers, uh, which now all went to do really cool stuff. Uh, and then at the time, I decided to leave Google to start an AI company near AI, which was supposed to be pretty much teaching machines to code. So my belief, and I still believe this, that now given this these types of models, you can change how we interact with computing. You can actually talk to computers and they do work for you instead of needing to have an engineer to write code for you, right? Which again, like now it seems more obvious that that's possible back in 2017, that was like, huh? Uh, and so, so we started near AI, but we only, we gave us a year because obviously at that time it was a moonshot and we didn't have that much resources. So we're doing some interesting stuff, uh, around data collection and some machine stuff, but one thing we ended up doing is getting a lot of people around the world, actually doing, uh, like writing some code for us, writing some descriptions for the code. And so we we had to struggle to pay them because they were mostly students in China in Ukraine and Russia in kind of some other countries. And like, some of them don't have bank accounts, some like Ukraine, for example, PayPal doesn't work in China, PayPal doesn't work. Um, and so there was like no good way to do it like programmatically uh, to send people money. And so we started looking at blockchain as like, hey, can we just send people money easily in, in code? And the answer was in 2018, the answer was actually no because even back then the fees on Bitcoin and Ethereum were way too high. Uh, and, and then as you probably know, when you start on a blockchain rabbit hole, you cannot stop. You just keep digging and you're like, wait, what is this? <laughs> and so uh, so we kind of, as we keep digging and researching different blockchains and different technologies, we we're like, wait, right, we actually know how to build um, something of this sort, right? So my co-founder, Alex, he was building Shard, a database company before. Um, and we have like, you know, systems background. We we're like, we can probably... Do this, but we can focus on user experience, developer experience, while kind of solving the scalability underneath and making sure fees are uh, staying stable. And so that's kind of how we went from near AI to becoming a near protocol in 2018 and and starting this journey.
4: So Ilya, um, in this current wave of LLMs, uh, of course, like this attention mechanism is a key part, but. Another key part is just the idea of, you know, like, just the idea of scale, right? Like, collect a lot of data from the internet, from books, and then pre-train the model. And, of course, the ideas of RLHF and all, they came later. But the fundamental idea is you throw in a lot of data, you pre-train, you make a big model, sort of produce good results. Did you anticipate that scale was going to work this well and... If so, why would, did you use that approach in in near AI? No, I, I, that's a part
3: that definitely kind of was interesting to see uh, that as people scaled up the models, they became, like they started exhibiting kind of properties, like more and more sophisticated reasoning properties. And it's like, it makes sense now that, you know, you think about it, like the capacity of the model is higher. It is able to like generalize better. It's able to kind of learn quote-unquote programs um, that it can execute. But, yeah, at the time, that wasn't, like, particularly clear uh, that, like, it will be that kind of step function change. And so we, yeah, we were not, at Near AI, we were not doing that partially because we also just didn't have, uh, you know, like, we raised, you know, small seed, like, pre-seed round, actually, and uh, we we thought we could get better... Uh, supervised data instead, um, and we did we did some pre-training on like GitHub and and things like that, but we we didn't thought didn't think of like training on the whole internet uh, at like large scale, and we did have resources to do something like that either.
4: And the other interesting thing is kind of like this this attention mechanism also seems to like it's built for natural language processing, but also seems to kind of Work across different modalities, like such as like images and maybe video in the future. And w- like, how does that come across to you? Right, like, is that unexpected or is that is that something you expected in the past?
3: I mean, like when the transformers were just in development, there was like like the teams actually tried them on different modal. I mean, not like multi-model models, but different modalities, and it was. Pretty interesting to see it worked really well. Um, so I think it's it, that was kind of known that it works on on different modalities pretty early on. I think the kind of the intuition there is really that you know the way kind of we work as well is very much like like our our eyes actually like move all the time every like I, I forgot how many milliseconds. And so we actually kind of pay attention to different parts, and then our brain kind of reconstructs the image right at different levels. Um, and kind of, you know, with natural language, same right? You read sentences, you like build some semantic meaning, and then you know, you kind of continue building out this the meaning of the what you read. Um, but sometimes you like zoom in on specific words when you need to uh, answer a question. And so, like, I think, like, generally speaking there is like intuition behind this, but obviously again, it's like, it, it's interesting to see how well it all works. Right. I definitely, you know, um, like we had, we had a pretty good models like even before it, it just like, they were super slow and like none, you couldn't use them in production at all. But this, you know, obviously like the, the scale with which for example, OpenAI went and, and scaled it up. And, and by the way, they did it. Tremendous amount of work to make it work. Like, it's not, we cannot take it for granted. They're just like, oh, we just increased parameters and hit enter. Like, no, it was a ton of work um, across the board from, you know, low level engineering to like fine tuning to, you know, they changed some of the model uh, kind of details of model architecture as well. Um, but yeah, like, the, it, it is, it is, it was surprising for me. Like, I think like that when it went from two to three, that was like interesting. Uh, like two, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. Like we've with, with trained models like that at Google kind of thing. Um, from two to three, it was like, okay, that's, that's really interesting because I can see, um, the, you know, there's like something more now happens and obviously 3.5 is where like, okay, yeah, that's like, it actually learned something that is like beyond, uh, just language modeling, right? Like there's some reasoning, that is, is extractable now through kind of this instruction fine-tuning
4: on a high level. I'm I'm actually curious what your stance is on this stochastic parrot versus understanding spectrum. So so there are um, there are people in the AI community that that say that LLMs actually don't understand anything. They are stochastic parrots in the sense that they have understood the statistics of what word follows what other word in language because they have seen billions of examples and when you talk to an llm and it's generating words is just uh, replicating the statistics of what it has seen in the past without actual any understanding behind behind the box that's the uh, like at the extreme that's the stochastic parrot view and on the other extreme perhaps there's a view uh, maybe like the Satsake view, which is kind of when you force a model to predict the next word uh, and you force it to do it again and again, in order to predict the next word, it has to start learning something about the world itself to do the the job of prediction well. And in kind of trying to predict it well, it is forced to learn about the world. And so it has actual, actual intelligence about what world it has in, it is in. So it's not just a stochastic parrot. This is actually, when you're talking to GPT-4, you're talking to something which has understanding distilled into it. And there seem to be like these two extremes in the, in the space. And I'm, I'm curious, like where you stand on, on that, uh, on that debate?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely closer to, to Suskever's view. I, like from my perspective, kind of, you know, it at the end is a bunch of math, right? And so like you can kind of decompose what this math is doing and, you know, try to build an intuition around like types of transformations it can it and cannot do. And so from my perspective, kind of you know, the first step is you take the document and you embed it, right? So you went from words into a multi, into dots in multidimensional space, right? So, I mean, let's, let's for a second, imagine it's two dimensional, although it's multiple. And so there is like kind of the words that are similar, right? Are, you know, close to in the space The words that are far. Now you have a next layer, which transforms these words, right? To kind of give them more context, uh, and so, just you know, think of it as rotation in the space, and then you have attention, which is you know, you're trying to kind of, given the the current word, you know, try to pull in the context of the words around it, to give to give it more semantic meaning, and so that's another transformation, right? So like, in a way, you take kind of set of words, right, and then you kind of keep transforming them, uh, and so it, it what it learns is this transformation function, which in a way is a program. It's a program that is trying to transform the words into a level which is useful then to predict next word, right? Or and then like later respond to questions. And so kind of, is this like a pure stochastic parrot where it's like, well, pure stochastic parrot we had when we were doing just like, you know, we we were generating Wikipedia articles, for example, right? You just give it a name and just say, generate a Wikipedia article. Like that's pure like, you know, there's, it just makes up stuff because like that, that name doesn't exist, right? There's no, there's nothing. So it just generates something that looks like an article. But when we, when we starting to look at like, okay, well, how would you answer to this question, right? It, it, to be able to do that, right? It needs to kind of process information, right? It It does this kind of transformations on the, on the article and like, it's trying to connect, contextualize that, and and give give the answer. So in a way, like I think of it as it learns some set of programs that like our world has, right? So like it's not a complete world model, right? It clearly has a lot of gaps, but it is a kind of set of programs that our like world model has that it can apply to be able to uh, to answer well or predict next word for a training. and that on itself is really useful, right? As we see. But it's also because it has so many gaps. It 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 has issues with doing some you know, kind of specific things. And the more precise it needs to be, the less well it does, right? Because it kind of ends up being like if either the pro the pro the programs are very probabilistic and kind of semantic versus you know if you ask it to like describe the steps of of something. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the things we do is kind of. Like there's like few thing core things and then everything else you kind of fill in automatically, right? So that's why it's really good. Like even at coding, like most of the most of the coding we do, right, is actually kind of boilerplatey, and so and so with like few nudges, you can actually get to like a reasonable code, uh, and that's why I think like things like copilots are, are pretty good products in result.
4: Cool. So look, turning to applicative view. So now these LLMs are, are pretty amazing, and you have some applicative ideas on applying them to the near ecosystem. So yeah, w- what what are they, and how do you see that unfold?
3: Yeah, I think, I think of this kind of a, a across three dimensions. So the first dimension is actually less about AI itself and more about our kind of society. And this is the idea that Kind of as more content is generated, as there's more kind of information wars in general, misinformation. And again, the important part to note: misinformation is not AI problem; it's a human problem. The it you know we are in crypto space, and so Byzantine generals is something that our space is based on, and li- that's literally the you know the mis c- citable misinformation. <laughs> um, like, and so. So the idea of like misinformation of of malicious like attack on information is something that exists from, you know, uh, from like uh, early on, and so from my perspective, the way to kind of start solving that is to to bring the kind of security, cryptography, and reputation to a level of. Um, of the content, of, the, of individual pieces of content. So right now, for example, we are you know, using websites, we have HTTPS, and so we have, a, we have a, some s- set of security guarantees around accessing specific websites, but the content on the website can be coming from anywhere, it can be saying anything, and there's no way to kind of maintain reputation, context, comments, et cetera, around it. So we need a new set of standards around that so that you can hover on an image, and it shows you or a video or a piece of text, and it tells you like who published it, when it was done, and if there's any side comments or context, etc., from reputable sources that should be attached to it. So for that, we need blockchain. We need you know set of standards. We need browser support, and we need kind of publishers to be supporting this. Uh, and I think that's a really important part for our society generally because. Otherwise we're going to be living in a world of kind of, you know, all the content is like, you never know what, if it's true or not. Right. And it's constantly like, um, kind of manipulation around that. Now kind of the second pillar for me is I call it kind of decentralized AGI, right? So if we assume, you know, these models are getting more powerful, more intelligent, uh, what you definitely don't want is a single company or you know two or three companies deciding what's right and wrong for these models to do. You don't want to, like them to decide what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do as models. It's also like it's the same thing that happened with social networks. Like being a kind of moral police for the world just doesn't work. The world is very multidimensional. Something that's legal in Amsterdam is completely legal in. A lot of other countries, and the other way around, and so like you know what moral is is even more complicated, and so it's really important to have community be governing kind of the uh, alignment safety as well as kind of the you know instruction data sets uh, that these models are trained on, and as well as like being able to validate that the model you run is actually the model uh that you wanted to run right so right now if you call you know GPT api or google api you get a response you have no idea who which like who produced that response you have no guarantees that it was the model that you uh wanted to run and actually sometimes it's not because you're trying to optimize costs and so uh like how do you actually have those guarantees and especially for something that's mission critical right like Like if I'm doing trading on this, if I'm doing healthcare, like uh, any kind of business decisions, right? You want to make sure to, you know, you're accessing the model that you have predictable parameters and outputs. And so for that, we need decentralized inference. We need kind of model marketplaces. We need kind of uh, community data, crowdsourcing and data management, uh, governance, and so kind of the whole stack of tooling that really manages this. And then... You know, on top of this, you'll be able to to kind of interact with it in a hopeful, like I think the other way is like making sure it's privacy preserving so that when you interact with it, you have it. So there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of, like, there's a bunch of startups doing decentralized inference. There is still privacy gap. I think that people are researching, but it's still pretty far. Um, There's some data marketplaces. There's some other kind of pieces, but it's not really... I would say, like, combine into, like, a product story yet. But I think, like, that's a really important for, like, humanity period, because otherwise, you know, like, tomorrow you go to your favorite, uh, mo- you know, AI model, and it says, like, oh, you banned. Or, you know, you used the incorrect word, and so now <laughs> Or something, right? Uh, so all, all the usual stuff we've seen before. And then, finally, I actually think the... The flip side of this is local models, right? Because although like these big models, they have the world knowledge, they have maybe access to lots and lots of context, uh, but actually what you want most of the time is a model that knows everything about you, but you don't want all this data to go anywhere else, right? You want it to live with you on your machine, on your, your private encrypted data store and you want a model that's able to access that. So you want a local model that is personalized for you, you control it. It's not affected and manipulated in any way by, you know, advertisement giants. And so it's actually on your side and is just responding kind of the way you would like to, not the way, you know, uh, Tide wants you or whatever. And so I think that is a really important side of kind of as well. And so we actually been uh, playing around with like edge intelligence and uh, did a couple events and been kind of talking with some projects um, around this space. And it's like, it's actually, it's less Web3 like in the sense of blockchain, but it's more Web3 in the sense of principles, right? It's user owned AI, it's, you know, controlling your own data. It's like all of those values that we talk about. And I think that and kind of the Web three self custody will be converging more kind of in a, in in the on the principle side, right? Maybe and like on technology side as well. And this is kind of the area I'm I'm most excited and working on right now.
2: So, in practice, how how are you like approaching this? Are there like teams you are funding, or is like there an AI team in here, or how how can we imagine this?
3: Yeah, so we've been working with some AI teams. We actually just had a Neocon uh, about a month ago and we had an AI track there with some projects presenting that we're already working with, uh, as well as uh, kind of I'm working as like advisor with a few projects um, kind of more closely. And uh, we do have, I would say like AI efforts more on also just automating our own operations. Like, th- So the other side of this is I think kind of the ecosystem itself should become AI-enabled and over time, AI ran. So like ideally my, you know, my job and uh, kind of the job of coordinating the ecosystem should be done by AI. And by the way, the AI is a kind of, like this approach actually solved the core problem of humanity and of resource coordination. The core problem of humanity is principal agent problem, is that when we want somebody to, to, to do stuff on our behalf, like we select, you know, uh, in elections or we hire someone to manage our money or something else, they have their own needs and, and they have their own wants. And so their decisions are usually not fully aligned with us who hire them. So that's called principal agent problem. And so AI actually being the agent that behaves on our behalf, acts on our behalf, is the way to solve that. And if you scale it up to kind of governance level, right like actually having AI being the actor that, uh, you know, makes decisions based on what the population wants is the way to solve a lot of the current challenges with, you know, when you elect someone, they they do stupid things, right? Or not things that they promised to do, kind of that's a way to like really address it. And so there's a really interesting kind of future of governance there. But like we can start applying it now in this decentralized ecosystems because they're already fully digital. They already have kind of like all the actions are on chain, right? So you can have traceability, you can have like veto power, et cetera, if something goes wrong. And so I'm really excited about also that side of the um, applying AI in, in lab three space. And obviously you need that whole AI general, like decentralized stack to do that. But we are kind of starting to do it from bottom up on, on our side, just in foundation, for example, like, hey, what are things we can automate? What are things that we can like start leveraging this technology for? As well as maybe build some of the tooling for developers to build kind of AI enabled things in 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 the space. we also have yeah like a bunch of projects that are kind of experimenting with this across different uh, areas.
2: yeah, that's super awesome. I, I also saw actually your co-founder like the Alex working directly on like smarter LLMs. Can you maybe also like what what's that about? Is that related to near or is it like some sort totally different thing? Or what, what can you share about that? Yeah,
3: so I mean, it's it's a stealth project right now, so I'll I'll not go into too detail. Maybe you'll have him, you know, in in, in at some point <laughs> to go more in depth into it. But yeah, I mean, it, we kind of uh, so I'm advisors there, and we working kind of uh, I would say side by side. But yeah, he's focusing more on the lower level and like kind of preparing for the future of of this as well.
2: Yeah, I think um, I guess maybe. You, you're mentioning, right, like, AI sort of also, like, making our life easier in the sense of operationally in the organizations, but also, I guess, yeah, in the wider society. And I guess that's always been, like, a huge focus of Near. So, um, yeah, we wanted to sort of yeah, dive also in that side of Near, where um, basically you're branded now in many places, like, as the blockchain operating system. And I think, yeah, one of the core features around that is, like, sort of the the UX focus of NIR, so maybe, um, yeah, can you explain to us how Near has sort of approached, um, yeah, basically usability for, for developers and, and users on, in, the, in blockchain systems and, and what you're currently doing there?
3: For sure, yeah. So, I mean, this was our vision from the start because when we started ourselves, kind of diving into the blockchain, and again, this is 2018, so things were different. Uh, you know, you needed to install Mist, for the <laughs> um, and so the, I mean, the experience was pretty like painful and, and it's also, it was built on top of kind of a very different set of primitives, I would say, like conceptual primitives that than what normally people, both users and developers expect, right? So, you know, you need like to understand the 0x wallets you need a seed phrase you need to like kind of pay gas you need to like have do all those things which are like strange uh when you you know when you're just starting and what we've tried to do from the start is like how do we design kind of still like a blockchain that is secure that it has all all the same properties that we all want um but is able to kind of hide a lot of this complexity, uh, ideally most of it and make, you know, blockchain kind of abstracted out, such that developers when they build applications can just build like as close to normal Web2 experience, but using the benefits of Web3, using the kind of all of the value and then also enabling users to have like more composability, right, more ownership, Kind of being able to interact with multiple kind of applications, and and uh, have this like transportability of data, and so the near itself, right? Kind of was designed with this. So we've like our accounts, for example, you know the account abstraction part of the accounts have been designed from scratch from the start on the protocol level. Uh, there's like a bunch of kind of differences that uh, we've done, including. That accounts themselves are, you know, just a username, uh, that follows kind of the main name structure. We have lots of different keys with different permissions, which allows to have like multiple devices securely. It allows to delegate uh, access. It allows to, like, applicate the front end of application to have a session key, for example, to transact uh, for a specific set of uh, kind of interactions. So kind of all of this functionality comes in by default, and then. Uh, On the developer side, the choices we made are around, first of all, choosing WebAssembly, which at this point is like, seems that everybody's kind of agrees on, uh, but um, pretty much it's like, it's an engine that runs in all the browsers. It's something that, uh, you know, is like on billions of devices at this point. It's supported by, you know, large network of uh, kind of developers, it runs on edge. You know, it supports lots of languages. You can run a lot of uh, software in it, and so uh, so we kind of picked that and made it really easy to build. Like in a way, from a developer perspective, what when you write near a smart contract, it's really just a service which has message like messages in and out, and you have a kind of local key value database, which is pretty much. Like the limits there are so big that like I don't think anybody ever hits them. Like you can, you I think we have contracts that have like four gigabytes of storage in their uh, in their database, right? Um, so you can build like massive, massive contracts. Specifically, you can build other chains as a smart contract on near. So we have Aurora, which is an EVM as a smart contract. Just like take in, you know the EVM that usually runs people a separate chain, just put in a smart contract. Their their database is where all the state of the uh, of this stored, right? You can do the same with Bitcoin. I've, I've been suggesting somebody to like fork Bitcoin and put it on there, make it ultrasound money. Um, um, we have JavaScript running as well. So you can run JavaScript smart contracts. You can potentially do Python and other stuff. So like it kind of enables developer experience across the board. And since then we kind of following the same principle as like, okay, well, now that you can build anything on the smart contract side, what's the next, sa- next part? Well, actually you want to get the data out of this, um, out of the blockchain. And blockchains are not optimized for reading data. They are op- kind of, we've tend to optimize them for writing and kind of maintaining security. And so for reading data, you want a completely different data structure. And so that, hence there's like this principle of indexing and um, kind of in the way of chain computation. And so so we've been building indexing framework and that actually culminated in what we call Query API, which is a service that indexes, that you can like write a smart contract that describes the indexing of data that executes off-chain. So in a way it's like an off-chain computation framework uh, that allows you to store output of that computation in kind of SQL databases that then you can query. And finally, well, okay, now you have backend and middleware, now you need a frontend, right? And again, it seems weird that we are like, oh, you build everything decentralized, but now run a server on a specific domain that you will need to maintain. It's like, okay, well, that kind of violates the whole part point <laughs> of what we're doing. So, so we created this uh, kind of decentralized frontends framework that allows to store the frontend code itself on chain so, again, the smart contracts code on chain, the middleware code on chain, the front end code on chain, and now anyone, any kind of, we call them gateways, can render this code on the user side, right? So, we have a desktop app, you can have a mobile app, and we have obviously web apps that can load that from the blockchain directly into your browser and render it there. So, there's no kind of middle server that's needed. Uh, to render, you, you don't need to have a domain. You can obviously, if you want to, and so you can just you know launch a web, launch kind of part of your web app as as this decentralized frontend component, and now it will live forever on blockchain, right? But side by side with your smart contracts, have the same upgradability, have security, cryptographic security. Who has it? Have versioning. So if I as a user don't hate a new version, I can go to version before. And so like all of the same properties we really like about smart contracts we now get for front-ends. So, so all of that is really enables like a full stack decentralized development that is, you know, familiar with normal developers. It's React JavaScript components, it's JavaScript for middleware indexing, it's JavaScript, Rust, C++, and like other languages for smart contracts. So you have like a full stack decentralization that you can have. And Interestingly, as we were building the front-ends, we realized actually the front-ends can work with any blockchain. And so uh, we kind of just turned on all the EVMs and some other uh, blockchains. And people started building all the EVM front-ends as well. So we have a Uniswap. For example, for Linea, the the kind of official Uniswap front-end is served out of the decentralized front-end, right? Because by the way, it also doesn't charge extra fees. And we have like partnerships with others, ZKVM, Mantle, etc. And so the idea is like, actually, as you start looking from that lens, from a user lens, right? As a user, I don't really care which blockchain the apps is on. I just want to use them. And like, if you go to, you know, some like, you know, some of these uh, gateways where you can access this front ends, you can just go and search for whatever app you want, click on it and start using it. That, that's how it should be. And so, uh, and this is kind of where we get to this concept I started with, which is like, hey, we want to abstract the blockchain for users and developers. We're getting back to it with kind of this, now that we have this full stack decentralization, we're like, actually this works for all blockchains, for all chains, for rollups, for whatever, uh, because you can actually abstract out all that on the front end side and make it really easy for people to interact with it. And so, hence we kind of started going backwards now with some of the other launches we had, right? allowing pretty much as a kind of, how do we make it really easy now for one experience to, to unite all of the blockchains and kind of, we call it chain abstraction principle. And so this goes into like GA and, and some other things we, yeah, we can discuss.
4: So, so India, is it, is it correct to imagine, um, so when you talk of like this indexer service or the service of hosting a front end, Is it correct to imagine it as the indexing logic or the front-end logic is stored on the chain, but then there is some kind of off-chain actor that is actually taking that that logic and the data and actually serving it much as a traditional server. And somehow the chain is guaranteeing that this server's work is correct and it is compensated? Is it is it correct to imagine it like that?
3: Yeah, pretty much. So the idea is, I mean, similar to maybe blockchain validator nodes as well, right? There's a kind of a logic <laughs> that is conceptual, and then all the validators are doing that job. Um, and, like, you can always have, you know, more validators, less validators. It's kind of uh, independent of that. Similarly, yes, the indexing logic and the front end kind of, source code itself is stored on chain. And so any server can run off and kind of create the same you know, outcome from this, right? Again, similar to RPCs, for example. RPC server, right, is serving your data, but it's, uh, uh, you know, anybody can run an RPC server and get the same results. So like it's, it's part of protocol in a way. Uh, it becomes part of protocol. And so a similar thing we're trying to do for both front ends and middleware indexing as well.
4: So maybe one way to think about this is that so on on, on Ethereum, like if you look at Ethereum, um, there's a basically a blockchain and then there are s- separate protocols like the ENS for n- naming your blockchain address to a human readable name. There is the graph which kind of like indexes a smart contract and kind of presents historical data about the transactions and events in the smart contract. Um, and maybe maybe there are other examples that I'm missing. So in Ethereum, like, these are like different systems, and usually they are competing systems. There's ENS, but they might be a competitor to ENS. The Graph, and they might be a competitor to the Graph. But in Near, Near has kind of taken the philosophy that some of some of these things are like a, uh, are like really key to the UX of a blockchain, and therefore they should be supported out of the box by the layer one. Itself, is that does, is that the philosophy here? To extent, yeah, I think I think the way to think about it is,
3: it's m- more than just layer one, right? Like at the end, when we are interacting with applications on any of these chains, um, like there's a whole host of tools and and more importantly standards that we are interacting with, right? And so like ERC twenty for example is a standard, and it's a standard that kind of came out of the application space, but it's now like you cannot imagine a CDU without the RC20 standard. And so what we're doing here is really defining standards for this key primitives that are just going beyond just, you know, token transfers, but going to like how to, how to define indexing, how to define decentralized runnets. Now implementation of those things can, like you can have many implementations. You can have, you know, mobile render and web render. You can have indexing. Like you can have, you know, external partners who are competing with each other, how to implement it. Uh, same same for RPCs, right? RPC is a standard, but then the way it's implemented, right, can be very different. Like underneath, you may be like cached everything in database. It may be using Cloudflare, like whatever the architecture you want to use. But the standard is there. And I think what we've been trying to do is define a standard and I mean, have a reference implementation, but... for for this more key pieces to make indeed the experience more aligned and kind of have this like singular journey for developers and users that, you know, is cohesive. And yeah, like the way, you know, some of the things like you can have businesses around the standards that are, you know, very profitable. um, But like the, the core principle for me of decentralization is actually in the standard. It's the fact that like if you define a standard it means that you can swap in and swap out any participant and so you're not you don't have this like lock-in effect you don't have the effect of you know you go to a bank and you cannot move your money out because it doesn't allow you to or you know that cannot cancel your telco provider because like, or like your positive telco providers don't even work for you the here we can always have like a competitor that comes in and if they're more effective and can provide better prices, people can switch to it, but the stand because the standards is the same. And so for me, that's kind of the key principle of like web three in general. And so I think the challenge that I've seen is like not having the standards actually leads to kind of huge fragmentation of experiences and as well, like actually mon- mon- monopolies been built because like now that you built all your software towards some API. You cannot switch because nobody else provides this, and like you need to rewrite half of your code to do that.
4: So, how much is kind of an, an analogy with the Apple ecosystem versus the Microsoft ecosystem for desktop? How much, how well does it map? So, in a sense, when you look at kind of like the the Apple uh, the Apple ecosystem, it's a company that has kind of maintained control over its kind of like operating system supply chain its way of like delivering music, its way of delivering books, uh, its way of how kind of um, applications kind of like appear to the end user. Um, And in in the beginning, I think they also wanted control over the hardware, but maybe they have retracted on that now. Whereas like kind of like Microsoft is one where just like the raw operating system, and then applications emerge. And if there are standards needed for their interoperability, the market kind of like figures it out. And from the outside, it feels like okay, near is kind of like more going towards that Apple philosophy that we are going to define all of the standards for for many of the things that are key determinants of the user experience. Uh, whereas other ecosystems like Cosmos or Ethereum might be more kind of like the Microsoft approach where we are providing like transaction throughput as the center, the account model as the center, and then kind of a lot of the interoperability between the standards is left to the market to figure out. How how much does that analogy map and how much does, doesn't does it map? I mean, the I would say the part that like,
3: agree on is we're definitely trying to focus on user experience right and so with that it's it's important to figure out like what are the touch points that you want to have standards on again like my perspective is for example rpc json rpc is part of ethereum standard like it's part of kind of the protocol even though it's actually not but like it it both accounts if you try to change that rpc api like you will break everyone and so, so we kind of see in a similar way, right? Like, if RPC is part of the standard, why not some other parts? But as I said, like you know, Near, for example, has like number of contributors that are building things. Like the, the actually the VM that's built right now for the decentralized ends is built by Proximity, right? Uh, and uh, for example, you know, the query API kind of other companies can implement the same standard and provide kind of better services. So I think the idea here is that by defining the standard, we kind of actually opening up the market for people to fill in like with better products uh, in this. And again, like it's pretty early still. So like a lot of stuff, we still build like reference implementations. But similar as Ethereum, by defining a standard for protocol, it opened up a place for all of these clients to be implemented, right? Like that's kind of the idea is like, you, you, you define a standard and then you open it up so that uh, others can contribute to it in the same way versus competing on APIs and competing on like, kind of, uh, you know, in a way marketing, uh, what's happening right now in, in, uh, in like token price, <laughs> what's happening in Ethereum for some of this like infrastructure tooling, right? Uh, it's like, can, can we get a bigger airdrop by using a product? versus like, hey, this is a standard, everybody will be using this standard. And so now what's the best product people can build for this standard? So I think like that's kind of the difference. I don't think it's as applicable to like this, you know, big commercial for-profit companies versus like this is an ecosystem that we're building um, and really defining more kind of this, I would say like layers
2: of the stack going back a bit to like this, what you said about the switching cost from your telco, but like, I guess like related here, I guess one big thing in blockchain is generally like bridging or like if you want to switch the ecosystem, you have to like go to some other chain and, and like move the liquidity there, which can be like cumbersome. And you did mention the chain abstraction for a second there and I, I saw on your Twitter a bunch also like this concept you have like of account aggregation uh, that you teased. So maybe you can yeah, can you talk? Tell us a bit about like what what are you doing there, or how are you like sort of solving this interoperability problem in in, in the blockchain space?
3: For sure, yeah. So that that's a very important topic. So although we have started building bridges, I think so. The, our Rainbow Bridge been built from 2019. So we, I think we started building, you know, kind of in line with IBC for, uh, uh, kind of timing. And we've been, we've been running since, um, I guess, like the beginning of 21. And at the same time, like bridges are really bad as a concept because they create a honeypot for security. They are the place to siphon off assets. Uh, and, and, like, there's, you know, if there's any attack on the protocol itself, bridge is kind of how you exit. Uh, and and they like, just, the amount of failure modes between different blockchains is, pre- like, is pretty big, right? But between multiple blockchains, it's like insane. Like, you know, chain stopped, blocks didn't publish, like all those things you need to, like as a developer, now you need to handle. And then on application side, okay, here's, you know, the fungible tokens transfers is maybe reasonable, but as soon as you add any logic, right, be that, you know, rebasing or be it NFT, now when you bridge it, you lose all of the logic on the other side. And so, so the concept I've been kind of exploring for a while now, I was calling it originally uh, remote accounts, but we, we kind of um, reframe it as account aggregation, this idea that ideally you want to have one account and there's mapped accounts to this ac- on other chains. So imagine, you know, you have my root.near account on near, and then I have an address on Ethereum, I have an address on Bitcoin, I have an address on Solana which I control with this account. And so now, if I want to buy a Solana NFT, right, right now I would need to like set up a new wallet, you know, bridge some stuff to Solana, buy the NFT, and then, I, like, I don't know, and then like go and look at it, you know, from time to time because I'm mostly sitting on NIR. Or you, can, you have this Solana address that's linked to your, uh, to your Near account, you pretty much through this buy an NFT, for this address and we can talk how that works. And now you have the front end that actually shows you everything you own across all of these chains from all of these addresses. And the way way mentally to think about it is when you go to Binance or Coinbase and you sign up with your Binance or Coinbase account, you have addresses on all chains, right? And I mean, they are deposit addresses usually, but imagine those addresses were actually normal addresses. You can use apps and buy NFTs and tokens, et cetera, whiz. So that and but your account is your you know coinbase account. And so that's kind of where your you know like ownership is. And so that's what we trying to, like we building, we're gonna be launching end of the first quarter, is this concept of account aggregation that now allows, together with decentralized front ends, allows to actually collapse the kind of this whole you know multiple chains, switching networks, you know bridging. All of this into a very simple experience of you get an account you know you deposit some funds into it and now you can transact across all blockchains uh, across all of their apps and it kind of will get executed on on your behalf on those chains and you have these addresses but it's all self custodial and all kind of hidden from you you don't need to think about gas fees on those chains et etc so that's kind of the experience we're going after and Again, this is just an extension of what we've been building with Near by trying to abstract out the Near blockchain. We're just like, okay, well, we can actually do that th- the same thing for everyone, and really provide like a unique and valuable experience. Because you know, anything multi-chain you want to build, Near will be actually the place to build it. Because you will be able to transact across all of the chains without having to bridge, without having this like complexity. Uh, you want to build, for example, Bitcoin DeFi. Well, on near, you know, every near account or smart contract will have a Bitcoin address you can deposit to. It can start, you know, doing stuff, right? And so that's kind of conceptually what we uh, really bring into market with, this, and like kind of finishing our, I would say, arc of chain abstraction that we started with doing near in the first place.
4: So on a on a high level, near right, like this idea is is in the Cosmos ecosystem. There's a chain called Neutron and because the cosmos ecosystem has ibc so cosmos chains can bridge to each other in quite a good way neutron has the idea that uh, in cosmos you have the idea of delegated account control which is like on one chain you have an address and that can control many other puppet addresses on other chains and neutron's trying to build that kind of that, that puppet master chain where like you will have your central account and you will control other addresses on a lot of chains over ibc through Neutron, Does it feels similar. But the reason it works in the Cosmos ecosystem is, you assume IBC, that there's a secure bridging solution underneath available. For this to work in Neutron, my, I almost start to think that, okay, the only way like this can work for NEAR and Solana, for example, having like a address on NEAR that can control a puppet address on Solana you need a secure bridge between near and solana is it not so the bridging problem solving the bridging problem seems like a prerequisite to this yeah
3: so we're trying to go away from bridging almost completely i mean there will be some places where you still need bridges but um so let, let's look at bitcoin as just a way more clean example right with bitcoin you cannot have a smart contract bridge because well bitcoin still has smart contracts and so the only thing you can do is to own addresses and so The core idea here, and it's conceptually the same as what Neutron is doing, but the core idea is different. The core idea is that we make Near Network itself be able to sign transactions for other blockchains. And so Near Network becomes, uh, in the way, custodian of all of this mapped addresses on all other chains, and you as a Near user telling network, right? Be that through smart contract or, or, or user, user interaction to sign a transaction on Bitcoin to send some Bitcoins from your r- remote address, from your delegated address to some other address, right? And so because of this, like, you don't need to actually bridge Bitcoin to near to do anything, right? You, you just literally... The Bitcoins live on Bitcoin network. The, op, you know, OP coins live on optimism. The, you know, Solana and NFTs will live on Solana NFT, uh, on Solana, and I just control all that uh, by just sending transactions there. But as a user, like I just interact with Near, and I kind of pay Near gas fee, which is very small. I say like, do this, you know, I attach whatever also, you know, if I need to buy something, et cetera, on Near, And then we have kind of intent relayers that actually execute stuff. Like, you know, the transaction gets signed by Near network and then intent relayer you know, send that transaction on your behalf on the other. And so there's no actual like bridging. There's no kind of security um, kind of issue where like if this bridge gets broken or whatever, or that network gets forked, et cetera, like none of that exists. And because near account, there's also like a very interesting and kind of a little bit crazy thing because near accounts are, tra- are actually tradable. So you can actually list near account as NFT and somebody can buy it and get access to it because you can rotate keys on NIR. What this allows to do is you can have lots of assets across all kinds of networks, and then you can list that as a bundle on NIR as like you wanna sell some BRC20s, some Solana NFTs, some Ethereum NFTs, and some, I don't know, OP coins and GMX at the same time. You can list all that as a bundle under one NIR account, and then somebody can buy all that with one transaction on Near, paying Near transaction fee, and within one second uh, block time, so you don't need to wait for a Bitcoin transfer. You don't need to wait for all of this. You can do it on one. So you you can actually start bundling all of these things and trading kind of across all chains on Near very easily without actually sending transactions or bridging anything anywhere else. And that's kind of the the shift that we're trying to do. I call it unbridging. That we like. You have the account level kind of ownership that's maintained, indeed, but it's maintained by very specific security parameters that are near parameters. And then, if if the let's say Solana network fails for whatever reason, there's no bridge problems, right? That would you know uh, rise from from this, like because you own stuff on on Solana. So whatever Solana has to deal with, right? Like whenever it recovers, etc., like you will get it back. But like it's it's kind of the same, like you know, you have this kind of relationship with that network, but not like there's no bridge that you need to deal with and kind of think of as like an intermediate, you know, complexity. So that's the idea. It's like, you know, again, we're gonna be rolling out more documentation. Uh, it's like, we have a testnet version coming out for people to hack on uh, in in kind of January. And so we, we actually invite people to start building because again, like a multi-chain experiences, like you'll be able to build with this way easier uh, because you don't need to think about all of the complexity of like, oh, this message didn't deliver, That network is like paused, you know, like something crashed because of inscriptions, like you don't need to deal with any of that, right? It's like, you can literally sell your, your you know, network failed, you can sell the account that, that has assets in failed network, right, to somebody else, for example, if they want to take that risk, right? So like, you can do that without having that network life. Uh, even so, so that's kind of the 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 level of experience we want. By up and like this leads to fully abstracting the blockchains, right? Because now from a user interface, I just go, I use the app, and like I just see that I'm using my, for example, near account, and um, it doesn't really matter for me that that was a Solana like NFT that I bought, right? I just see it in my portfolio view, and like you know, for that we need like indexing of Solana and all the other chains data, so. The same stack there. We need decentralized front-ends that kind of aggregate all this. And so kind of that that's like how we
4: package all the stack into uh, by abstracting the blockchain. So quick, quick nerd question, which is, so okay, so Nia is like, this is awesome, first of all. I mean, Nia becoming like a distributed custodian, essentially. Imagine it as like Coinbase, but distributed. And the distributed custodian can have Hot wallets, basically, on all of the other uh, all of the other chains. But as an engineer, my 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 questions really starts to be in in Bitcoin. You have like a single sig account or a multi sig account. That's what Bitcoin provides available, right? Like it it assumes that there is like maybe like one private key and then one public key and there's a signature to that public key. Whereas near as a distributed network has lots of validators. So how do what fancy cryptography makes this, makes this work? Yeah, so it's called chain signature. And so this is a threshold signature
3: with, uh, where the valid, as valid as rotate, you can maintain actually the same set of public keys. So even though you rotate and like have different parts of the private key uh, being rotated, they all, like when they sign threshold signature, you get the same public key. And I mean, you can have derivations of this. So you can have like as many public keys as possible, but they're all deterministic within the whole blockchain. So so that's a pretty cool technology. Um, and yeah, like it's kind of reasonably new. Some of the folks from the CD have been pioneering that. And uh, yeah, we're kind of leveraging that as a way to have near to become this, this decentralized kind of custodian.
2: Right, I think maybe also Axelar works a little bit like that, or am I, I, I think. But anyway, one question that I had, like, in this scenario where you have the the NFT on Solana, you need the liquidity, right, on Solana as a user. So maybe I have, like, funds on MIR, but I don't have on Solana. Like, is there some system that you're thinking of to to balance that out without bridging or, yeah.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So we so this is where we call them intent relayers, or I mean, we we'll, we'll, we're still shopping the name. But so this is the idea that on Near we have this. Um, well, we have this principle of trial account. So this is the idea where I can send you right now a link. You click on it, and you'll have some Near in it, so you can do stuff on Near, but you cannot withdraw that Near. So we actually like we kind of like uh, what what it will do is like actually send you a one time use private key which when you click, it actually create a new private key in your, in, on your browser, switch that private key, but that private key is limited access to that account, so you can transact, but you cannot withdraw funds. And so that kind of concept applied now to other uh, kind of chains in a way. A lot, what it allows to do is we can have other parties to, to fund the account uh, to execute things, Right. They can put some Solana tokens to pay for gas or for NFTs, but you cannot withdraw that by sending a tra- like direct transaction to withdraw Solana. So, so what this allows now to do is you can pay the somebody on NIR with NIR token, and then they will put Solana tokens there and then execute your transaction. And kind of by doing that, right, we kind of have pretty much a way to... That's why I say it's intent, right? You say like, my intent is to buy some Solana thing, but I don't have Solana token. Like here's a bunch of near tokens, execute that there. And so, and you know, now you need somebody who has liquidity on all the chains to execute the stuff, but that's like having a third parties doing that is way easier, right? Than to have like whole bridging and automatic
2: uh, execution. So this is like, yeah, really like, um some sort of fee attached to it and the relayer can grab it. It's not like a blockchain network or anything.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like a surf body, yeah, like, you know.
2: Like a market maker or whatever, whoever it is. Yeah. It's like,
3: yeah, any market maker or any, like, a, a, like bot, arbitrage bots can do this kind of stuff pretty much. And, and, and they also, as doing that, they'll just relay the transaction as well. So, like, you don't need to actually also send, the, like, submit transaction because like the validator is only signed transaction right now and somebody needs to like actually ship it to -to peer-to-peer network so they they will do that as well
2: yeah that's pretty awesome yeah like looking forward to reading more about it once the the more documentation is there and stuff but yeah thanks for for sharing it here and um, yeah I guess further in the near journey like we we didn't actually talk about much about the chain itself right I think um, you were basically one of the first if not the first like sort of sharded blockchains and um, and been like staying with that sort of narrative while I think yeah others have pivoted from that. Um, so yeah can you tell us a bit like how has the like near sharding developed or what what is sharding actually again for people that forgot about it <laughs> uh, and you know where 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 is it going?
3: Yeah, so as I mentioned, right, my co-founder, Alex, he was, you know, building sharded database. I mean, I'm coming from Google where everything is sharded, just like you cannot have, you know, billion users and put them into one database. It just doesn't work. And so, and like on my computer. And so for us, it was like, you know, kind of pretty obvious that you need sharding. And so sharding, I mean, at, at the core of the idea is like, you as you process, you know, as, as you store more data, as you process more transactions, you need... M- Multiple machines doing work in parallel, and you want these machines to be kind of doing similar work, right and like distributing load. And ideally, as more load comes in, you actually increase number of computers, right? So this is how all of the web two giants work. You know, again, imagine your Gmail, right? or imagine uh, Facebook, right? There's like a database underneath which you know is sharded. It has hundreds or thousands of servers that store, for example, user data. And, uh, you know, when you're a user requesting, it routes you to the server where your user data is and retrieves it. And then when you need to update something or process, you know, transaction, it kind of routes that transaction there. So that's kind of the core concept. And like, you know, again, logically, you cannot have, like, you cannot have billions of users using the same, like one server, right? And this is what's currently happening where for non-sharded systems, it means like, they relying on pretty much one server replicated, but one server nevertheless to process everything that happens on their chain. And so, so for us, it was kind of you know pretty obvious that we need to do this now. Blockchain adds extra complexity compared to Web2 where you have all of the you know, security that you need to deal with. And so um, we've been kind of obviously iterating on, on a design kind of within this conceptual thing. And so we introduced Nightshade, um, back in two thousand and nineteen, which was our sharding design, where, in a way, every single near contract or account is actually a separate chain. And we just bundle them in such a way such that as users and developers you don't know about it, right? Uh, and so we kind of bundle them to the number of machines that you know parallel processing machines at a time you need to. And so again, this is very similar how Web two works, where you know every, like user account is in a way independent and they store and they can be like moved around between different databases like between different computers uh, in the database and so so this kind of allows to abstract out the complexity of the sharding from the user right as a user if you go to near blockchain you will not see shards we don't actually show them like you need to go to RPC and like query the block headers and stuff like this um, now the thing that we in 19 were planning to do was uh, for security was based on challenges. And that's proved to be very challenging. And this is across the whole space, right? We've seen like a number of other chains actually struggling with implementing challenges. And so kind of earlier this year, we ended up uh, kind of doing research and, and refocusing on instead doing stateless validation. So what this means is now when block is produced, uh, block actually contains all of the state that that uh, execute that transactions touched, and that information is being sent around to everybody else what this means is that other validators don't need to have state of the shard they can just validate the block on its own and it means we can have you know hundreds and thousands of validators validating every shard it can be completely random. They don't need to be assigned to specific shard at any time, and uh, this also means we can, you know, have now a lot more kind of nodes and validators in the network, kind of proving the whole system. Now, kind of on a low level, what it, what near is is really a decentralized sh- shared sequencer that then sends out the data availability of these transactions across the whole chain. We use erasure coding. And then we have this execution, which now is stateless execution, which then is being proven by number of other validators and and settled, right? So we kind of package the whole what now is modular framework, actually in one you know pipeline way on top of the same set of validators, right? Kind of just being rotated constantly across the network, and so that's uh, you know at the core what near is, and so we actually. Uh, Going to be launching the new uh, testing network for stateless validation uh, to kind of as a part of our phase two launch, and so this is kind of finalizes like core roadmap of of sharding that we've outlined since 2019, and uh, this should be coming kind of January or February, and we're going to have you know the full mainnet launch probably in April, and this is the idea that actually. Kind of conceptually, if people read like Vitalik's Endgame, this is in the way that structure. You have block producers who are sharded or kind of can, you know, we can keep adding more block producers in parallel so you can keep scaling the network. Uh, we're also moving the uh, kind of a somewhat in because of this block producers now don't need to rotate as much. We're actually moving the whole state into memory, which gives us about 10x improvement on each shards uh, kind of transaction processing. Uh, and so like each shard gets 10X and then you can have more shards. And so then they pr- kind of, you know, they do, there's a coding data availability, and then they do processing, create this uh, blocks with state witnesses, send them out, and then you have large network of validators who who don't need to be this large, who can just uh, validate this blocks without having the full state of the chain. So that, that's kind of the, you know, in a way finalizing our roadmap, but also very much end game. This kind of bundles a lot of the current, like, roll up concepts and, you know, sell a base concept that Ethereum is talking about into one product. And then uh, we announced we're we working on Vlasm with Polygon because this kind of this sending out state witness. With the block is actually uh, a lot of bandwidth, and what zk WASM allows us to do is actually to prove the whole block execution with state witness on the block producer directly. And so now instead of sending like potentially you know megabyte of data, we can just send you know whatever ten kilobyte proof uh, out, and everybody else can just validate that without re-executing all the same transactions. So that is kind of actually, you know, final end game. I mean, there's like a few more pieces that uh, to complete the picture, but that is the structure that we we think is pretty much final kind of architecture. That uh, you know, you have censorship resistant, uh shared, sharded sequencer, right? So uh and you can you know, you have like all the data availability underneath to pr- provide you so that, and like we do data availability first before execution, because that means all the other indexers and other piece of infrastructure can start executing in parallel, and so you don't have latency on user interfaces before the f- kind of finalization of the execution on the validators themselves. Then you have kind of execution on validators, out witness, and now. Uh, you know, lo- large network of validators can validate it and prove it without needing to have state rotated and you know, all kind of having like you know, potentially state is like 50 gigabytes for example. So they don't need to like have that 50 gigabytes on them. They just receive whatever relevant for the transactions that are being processed. And so that's kind of the yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit complicated as a as a scheme, but but like really, it's powering this again like the kind of the end game structure. Uh, that uh, people have been talking about. At the same time, it's, it is like kind of that modularity, just like reusing the same set of servers, right, to, to ensure kind of uh, throughput and uh, latency, low latency.
4: Yeah, like, that's, that, that's like an episode on its own, to be honest, to dig through that. Is it correct to think that like the stateless validation requires ZK Wasm as a primitive
3: So no, because you you can do stateless validation without ZK. So what you do is you execute transactions, you record which pieces of state you touched, and then you just send those pieces of state with with witnesses, right? With uh, kind of proof that it's part of the state together with transactions. And so we're actually launching that first while in parallel kind of working on ZK Wasm. And so ZK WASM, what it allows to do, though, is just compress all of these and execution of and validation of this into just a proof, right? So in a way, like ZK WASM will prove the execution of this blob, pretty much state plus transactions into just a fixed size proof. But it, but it so it's more of an optimization. WASM, from this perspective is optimization. And it's obviously like way better for like longer term, you know, storage, but it's not a prerequisite.
4: I mean, maybe I'll I'll try to present my simple imagination of like of this system. So the way I imagine it is like if you imagine I'm a I'm a validator. I'm an accountant, right? Automated accountant. Essentially, in near, I have the capability. I'm assigned somehow like some piece of work, and and somehow my work is also rotating, right? Like it's not part. There's a massive ledger, massive ledger, massive state, and I'm assigned. Hey, go and make some changes to this part of, of the state. So I can I can basically go to that part of the state. There are a bunch of transactions associated with it. I execute the transactions, and first I can I make the data available. Hey, these are the transactions I'm, I'm going to execute. I make the execution. I update the state. And today, I somehow provide some witnesses so that for the other accountants, I can sort of provide a proof. Hey, I did my job correctly. Here's proof. And they don't need to download my part of the state to verify my work. And this ZK proof will make that even easier. So the state, imagine as a massive massive tree or something, I I can modify some branches of the tree and I create a proof. And then I... That proof is witnesses today. ZK wasm tomorrow, and I can send that thing to others. They don't actually need to have my part of the tree in order to verify my work, and um, and then there's a separate system that says, okay, in modifying this part of the tree, what are the transactions I did? Uh, some somebody uh, duplicates duplicates that work, and because because I can modify a part of the tree quite independently. And there are many like me. Um, so there are many accountants like me. All of these accountants are kind of modifying like different parts of the tree uh, in parallel. And like that is fundamentally why the system is able to scale. Yeah, very well put. So you have a partnership with EigenDA. Why do you need a partnership with EigenDA in that case?
3: Yeah, so, so this kind of maybe... Yeah, ch- changing gears, right? So, so this is like near itself.
4: This is near itself, right? Like it has no interaction with other things. But yeah,
3: yeah. So, so, and, and again, near itself right now is you know top used blockchain by number of addresses. For example, uh, you know daily active, monthly active, weekly active, and so like near itself has like a bunch of utility and and value already. But again, we kind of when we frame this like chain abstraction thesis, right? What it means is that for the developers and users on top, we're trying to provide as smooth experience across using other chains as well. And this is where we kind of looked around and like, oh, NIR already has data availability built in, Uh, like that's just part of our protocol. And so we have, you know, a bunch of layer twos that we can plug in into this to uh, kind of hooking into the rest of our systems, right? And so that's where we kind of, you know, started uh, and in, like kind of pretty much pr- provided a way to hook in OP stack, CDK, uh, uh, Starknet's kind of stacks. How do you publish your data on Near? Now, if you just publish data on Near, it's useful. It You know, it's obviously very cheap. It's, you know, way cheap, like cheaper than... Uh, pretty much everything else on the market, and because Near is sharded, you actually have more capacity than anything else can that can take your data already. And we're going to add more shards, but it's not as useful because you cannot route messages between um, between kind of smart contracts on rollups between each other and near and near contracts. And so that's where we had a partnership with EigenLayer, not EigenDA, to uh, help us actually. Um, do the work for this layer twos to get to executed state and uh, outgoing messages such that the uh, applications that want to route messages faster within one and two second, they can actually do that through the NIR network. So eigen layer validators will execute this rollup given the data published on NIR, they'll execute it and they will have a new state route for the rollup itself now so think of it, it's, it'll be extra accountants, Ethereum accountants, who will be actually looking at the roll-ups um, and updating state through there, but then publishing back to the near, like telling it to the near accountants as well. And so now near accountants and Ethereum accounts together know the state of both near and all of the roll-ups that are plugged into the system, and so now you can route messages between roll-up contracts and near contracts and you know back and forth. And so this allows us to kind of, again, like align more the, the, the space of, of the, uh, the space. And so again, for chain abstraction, for account aggregation, it means we can do things way faster between all of the rollups that, that fit into the system. So that's kind of how like DA plus eigenlayer kind of provide this fast finality. And then, you know, there's other kind of tooling that we, you know, plug in on top with decentralized front ends to really kind of abstract it from a user but like we need that kind of alignment again, near in a way, each account, like each, each element of that tree is is separate rollup, right? And we kind of we have a system for managing them. And so we're kind of trying to fit the other rollups into the same system. And you know, obviously we need to like plug in some pieces to to make it work under the same security parameters that rollup expect, right? Which is Ethereum security, hence the eigen layer. And then DA is kind of a way to get this data, you know, into the system as well and, and provide some guarantees there.
4: Um, hard to unpack, but but oh, like logically, it's like, yeah, imagine, yeah, it's exactly that. It's imagine Nier as this massive tree. And then there are like lo- lots of accountants in Nier itself. There's one group of accountants and then accountants can kind of modify parts of the tree independent of each other they can send proofs about their modifications so that other other accountants can trust their work and then kind of like this eigen partnership is in some way saying that there is CDM accountants here yeah. yeah it's like near near says we have an awesome group of accountants but if you want your own accountants and if you want your own roll up you have created a separate group of accountants but then your accountants and the near accountants we we sort of need to interface in some way so that um, so that the work your accountant's did can be deduplicated on Near and the other way around, and via this du- deduplication we can somehow achieve like trustless interactions between Ethereum rollups and Near, so something like that, right?
3: Yeah, pretty much. Like I would say the so the rollups is pretty much I want my own accountant, right? That runs everything, but then I I trust Ethereum accountants to revalidate everything and and finalize it, right? So like Ethereum accountants are are fu- the final final. My accountant is the one who can do quickly, right? He sits right by my side, and so what we're saying here is near accountants can you know can provide a bunch of value by. You know, either connecting your accountant to the other guy's accountant, right? So you can connect together or to our applications. But you st- we still need Ethereum accountants because the finality of the rollups is on Ethereum, right? And so that's why we have Eigenlayer pretty much to lend us their <laughs> Ethereum accountants uh, to kind of use the, le- the you know, as a rollup publishes the ledger, right? From their accountant first, like we have Ethereum you know accountants dragon layer to like validate everything quickly right before the full ethereum finality will happen and so that allows to kind of near accountants and to have like trust into into the execution of what happened on the rollup while also have the way quicker you know time to finality and to communication of messages for these rollups and maintaining the same security as as they have through ethereum so that's kind of like you know, it's like rollups, near and Ethereum coming all together into like one happy family of accountants.
2: I think that's that's a great note to end on, right? Like, uh, big happy family of accountants. <laughs> um, yeah, Ilya, thank you so much for coming on. It's been like a massive episode. I think, um, yeah, uh, I need to like process this, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will take some time to process everything too. Well, we can do
3: another one <laughs> in a few months. I actually launched all this stuff, so.
2: Yeah, totally. And yeah, we still also have Alex' episode about the uh, Smarter LLMs uh, outstanding, so uh, lots to do. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on and, and thanks for our, to our listeners. Today we'll have like one and a half hours of, of content here. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud,